0: Okay, so on the grateful journey, today I have Goose Danger Dawson here to tell us what he is grateful for. Bubby, what are you grateful for? My family. Why? Because I love them and they help take care of me. <laughs> yes. So, in the season of Thanksgiving, and I'll be honest, Pack Dawson doesn't um, necessarily celebrate All of the components of Thanksgiving, but more or less, it's a day of gratitude. We hope that you have enjoyed our year-long gratitude journey and that you have loved ones that you also are grateful for. So happy gratitude journey. And y'all are in for a treat because the trio of SLPs from Boston Medical Center are absolutely fantastic. So enjoy this episode, Goose Danger. Thank you. All right, bye y'all.
1: So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our
0: squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey, this is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So my non-financial disclosures, I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters. National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech Language and Hearing Association, SCISHA, a current board of trustees member with the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia, and I am a current member of ASHA, ASHA SIG13, SCISHA, the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia, SHAB, a member of the National Black Speech-Language Hearing Association in Basla, and Dysphasia Research Society, DRS. Additionally, I volunteer with ASHA as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 Convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with SpeechTherapyPD.com. And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator. And I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. So those
1: are my current disclosure statements. Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely.
0: All right, everybody. I am so in awe of today's guest's. One, because today's guests are the people that I learned all about that findhelp.org that I've talked about like literally for the last year. It's these three lovely ladies that are coming on that taught me that when I saw them last year at ASHA. But also, <laughs> if you've listened to the weekly play-by-play, this has been a what new catastrophe could go wrong for Pack Dawson. So I have lost track how many times we've rescheduled this episode, but um, here we are. We all survived and dog still lives. Is she's asleep wanting to go out, but we made it. So I have to, one, apologize again to these lovely guests for allowing me to flake out because of life, and two, thank them with my whole heart for coming on and for being lights in our profession because truly the work that you're doing is fundamentally life changing for the patients that you see, but the wisdom that you impart to colleagues is profound. So thank you. Yes going to get teary-eyed. I love this. Okay. So we have three dynamic guests joining us today from Boston Medical Center. Hint, hint, hint. Look for their names. And uh, Asha, while we're up there, you might want to catch them. But I have Juliet, Carrie, and Jen. And they were a powerhouse trifecta when they presented Last year, so I'm gonna go in alphabetical order, which is how can O element O. We'll start with O. There it is. I know alphabetical order. I teach people, so I'll not to spell. Um, <laughs> Juliet, can you take us from the top and introduce
2: yourself and thank you for coming on? Thank you so much for having us, Michelle. We we were we've been looking forward to coming today, and I know it took a while for us to get here, but. I'm glad we made this happen. We are excited to share, you know, the work we're doing at Boston Medical and hopefully, you know, our colleagues can, you know, take some lessons from that that, that would be helpful with, you know, their patients as well. My name's Juliette Ochura. I am a speech-language pathologist and a certified lactation consultant. I work at Boston Medical Center and also work at Boston Children's Hospital, so kind of both places. I specialize in the evaluation and treatment of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders in medically complex infants and children. So everything from the NICU, multidisciplinary clinics, outpatient clinics, swallow studies, so kind of getting to do, you know, all of it, older kids with ARFID and that kind of population as well. I am most passionate about bridging the gap in access to, to care with a low-income and diverse population. And um, we've, we've been lucky to, to have the funding to be able to do some of that work at Boston Medical Center that we'll talk about today. Michelle, I don't know if this is where you want me to talk about how I got into being an SLP as well? Yes. How did you find Because, I mean, I found out about the profession because my
0: youngest brother was born with a cleft lip. And he also, well, my mother, my stepmama got electrocuted when she was seven months pregnant. So he also had dysarthria when he was born. So he didn't talk till he was four. And I learned about it because he went to speech therapy. Oh, by the way, from one of my dance partners, mommy, we did ballet together and Ms. Safransky. So wherever Ms. Safransky, thank you for being (laughs) you. But that's how I found about it. And so I always like to hear people's stories. Like,
2: Yeah. Yeah. My story is quite at least I think it's quite interesting. Initially I I worked at, for the CDC doing medical research in like infectious disease. And then my son had a brain injury when he was 15 months old. And so I found myself at Spalding Rehab for about 6 months inpatient at Spalding for rehab and there was this amazing SLP who's still at Spaulding, Lynette Holmes, who worked with my son doing just feeding therapy and also a little bit of like communication. And so just watching her work with him, that's how I fell in love with the field. And I felt like it was such a nice bridge between the medical aspects of things. And I majored in linguistics as an undergrad. So I felt like speech language pathology and offering that option with the medical part of things was a good way to help families. So I went back to grad school and at MGH and this is how I ended up doing feeding and swallowing. I wanted to be able to offer the same kind of help that I got from uh, Lynette to, to other families. So kind of changed profession somewhere in the middle, just inspired by my, my own son's story. If If it's not too personal, how is your son doing? He's, he's the happiest kid I know. He has, you know, his res- residual, like, medical complexities from his brain injury, but he gets to do tastes of purees, and we've had swell studies, and he aspirated, but he can do honey thick and purees, and so we do that for pleasure, you know, as tolerated, but he's, uh, yeah, he's good. He's the happiest kid I know. I love that. Oh, well, well, thank you
0: for sharing your walk. And uh, okay, now we're going to pretend Michelle knows spelling. It would be Carrie.
3: Carrie. <laughs> yeah. So thank you again for having us. We're so excited to be here and to share uh, what we're doing and to learn from you. So I grew up in New Hampshire. I decided to be a communications major and I didn't love it. And so I came home one day from winter break and told my mom, I want to go into communication sciences and disorders. And she said, no way. you! I've been a special ed teacher for 20 years and you never showed an interest. And if this is something you really want to do, you need to come shadow the speech pathologist in my elementary school. So I did and I loved it. And somewhere along the way, I was fortunate enough to find Jen and Juliet and I love working with them. So we just have all kind of stayed together for many years now.
2: Oh, I love that.
0: It's like the three amigos. <laughs> yes, I love that. Oh, for the record, in my head, I envisioned, I said three amigos, but I saw, what is it? Mickey, Pluto, and Daffy Duck from the Disney Three Mouse Kateers. <laughs> I love with me, but um, I'll 20,
3: take that. that's nice. <laughs> Well, is your mom still a SPED teacher? She just retired. She did. She was 35 years a special ed teacher, and she specialized in reading. So, <gasps> oh, wow. That's, that's profound. profound. She'll be coming to our ASHA talk because it's in Boston, and she was so excited. She said, can I come in? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> we're just like low-key sneak mom in. Yeah, I may or may not in. have been with my dad once. <laughs> 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 that's the only time I'll hear you talk. I'm definitely coming. So I said, all right, come on, come on in.
0: Have the mama we'll come. Love this. Okay. So Jennifer, huzzah. <laughs>
4: Perfect. Yes. I thank you again for having us. And I do feel like it's timely because we met at ASHA and now just in a few weeks, we'll be able to see you again at, at ASHA in Boston. So yeah, it is exciting to be able to highlight the work that's being done in the Boston area. I think there's a lot of exciting presentations to come. My story started almost 20 years ago, I guess more than 20 years ago. And right after September 11th, I started working as a secretary at Boston Children's Hospital for the service that provides care to the most complex, medically complex patients. And when I was a secretary there, one day somebody dumped the feeding team scheduling folder on my lap and said, "Here you go. Today's my last day. You're scheduling for the feeding team." <laughs> um, I was New thinking <laughs> about going back to grad school, anyways, but I met Kara Fletcher Larson at the time, and she was a speech pathologist working in the feeding team, and she kind of took me under her wing as I applied to grad school and. That was how I discovered that feeding and swallowing was a part of the training in communication disorders, speech language pathology, and I just fell in love with it, how it really you know encompasses so many different areas, and you have to pull together all of the pieces to make sense of your complex patients so I kind of was like trained at Boston Children's Hospital as a graduate student, and then I was hired as a clinical fellow, and then Kara and I together kind of forged. <laughs> Forward with a small group and just continue to grow the team there. And yeah, it's been, now I'm working at both Boston Children's and Boston Medical Center and excited to share just how, you know, two hospitals, same city, how do we have to adjust what we've learned and apply it to make sure we're providing access to all patients.
0: Yes. Yes. Oh, I love this. I didn't realize how many children's hospitals were actually up there. One of my dear friends, Emily, y'all might know her, Emily Justice, and she's an SLP in Boston. Emily's a hoot. Um, and she goes, Oh Michelle, there are so many hospitals here. <laughs> I'm like, well, I mean, South Carolina was real small. Virginia's a little bit bigger. <laughs> I try very hard to hide my twang, but now that I'm back in the mountains, I find it slipping out more. And I'm
4: like, <laughs> that. maybe you'll get to hear my Boston accent today. <laughs> <It was laughs>
0: <so hard> today. <laughs> I, I may or may not have, y'all have some of my favorite art museums up in Boston. So I may or may not have decided to fly in accidentally early on Tuesday so that oh. I could have a few hours to like. Put in earbugs. We call them earbugs because my youngest said they looked like bugs. So earbugs. Someone toss them my earbugs and <laughs> I'm so excited. Okay. All right. So I'm gonna take it from the top because we have a lot of ground to cover. And if we go over it, that's okay. But can y'all someone I'll let y'all decide who? Can you share with us what's unique about the populations that you've been called to serve at Boston Medical Center and
3: and some of the challenges they face with respect to PFD interventions. So I can, I'll can i take that with just a quick overview of the population that we serve at Boston Medical Center. So our mission at BMC is to provide exceptional care without exception to whoever walks in the door and whoever comes to see us. So it's a Five hundred and fourteen bed hospital, with the largest trauma center in New England. We are the largest safety net hospital in New England, which means that we serve mostly a low income population, regardless of their insurance coverage or their ability to pay or their immigration status. So BMC was the first hospital enrolled in the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative. So we very much support. Yeah, mother baby connection. Yes, but a lot of people may not know what a baby-friendly
0: hospital is. Can you explain? I what can, yes.
3: So the whole, the you might be able to explain this better than me, Michelle, but the whole initiative is to support mother-baby bonding from birth and to support breastfeeding as much as possible.
0: Yeah. This is, so folks, if you're listening, it's like a training and a certification the hospital has to apply for, but what's really cool is- and I learned about this when I was getting my CLC. It's when the baby's born, they literally put the baby on the mom's tummy and the baby goes through the reflexes to crawl up to the mother's breast and latch. And I remember watching the videos thinking, there's no freaking way that's going to work. And then there's the baby <laughs> that's like spider crawling on the mom, which also was kind of creepy. I'm not going to deny that. That yeah. <laughs> Juliet's like, yes, yes, it was. <laughs> but like, because they're all creepy. I don't like that sensation. (laughs) There's a reason we don't have Play-Doh at our house either. But but yes, but baby-friendly hospital initiative is just, it's a profound,
3: yes. Okay, continue. Sorry, I got very excited. It's been amazing. For us, for our team, because we've been able to learn, we're all CLCs and we've been able to learn from the IBCLCs and we work closely together, both in the NICU and outpatient. So that's been amazing. So BMC also had the first hospital-based baby cafe in Boston, which is so exciting. It's a lactation support group run by a lactation consultant and anyone can come. So I went with my own kids and it's just an amazing supportive group where you can connect with other moms and have the guidance of an IBCLC or a CLC. So that's amazing. So nearly 75% of our patients come from underserved populations and rely on government payers for health insurance. And that includes Medicaid. So it's been a challenge. And I think part of where this presentation came from is that we had to be really creative to find resources that were accessible to our families. We want to make sure that we're providing recommendations that they can access. So it's kind of spurred a lot of creativity and working together to try to problem solve for our families.
0: Mm -hmm. So if y'all have that many families that are like different immigration status and I'm assuming that you work with folks that have lots of different languages. And so there's some pretty I associate that with do they have the same access to care and health literacy. So are there lots of
3: translators available? Yeah. So that's an excellent point. So, about I would say more than thirty percent of BMC's patients don't speak English as a primary language. So, as much as possible, we try to incorporate in-person interpreters. But we do work closely with interpreter. And I don't want to spoil the rest of our talk today. But Juliet's going to go into you know how we've made everything more accessible for our patients from from language. So, I don't want to step on your toes, Juliet. <laughs>
2: That's fine. I think we can talk about it at any point. That's fine. okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I got excited. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. So the other thing that we I think is different about BMC and kind of special to work with is that 75% of our staff are female and 52% or more now identify as non white. Yeah. So it's a really diverse workforce and a diverse patient population. And I think that really helps the families connect with us better.
0: Yes. It's reflective of who we are as a nation.
2: Yeah. Did I miss
3: anything, Jen and Juliet, from demographics?
2: No, I think apart from like just the limited English proficiency number, like more than 30%, more than half of the patients that come there identify as either black or Hispanic, or so it's like majority non Wide patients, and then within our own like speech and language patients, more than forty percent are non-English speaking. Like, like almost half of your patients don't speak English as a first language. It forces you to kind of be creative about, you know, how you're providing care and how you're improving access. And I think also just there's a lot of trauma from there's a lot of immigrant population with a lot of trauma through like their journey getting to the United States. So you you ch- literally check every box on the social determinants of health in yeah. terms of what, what the, the barriers to accessing care are. Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I know and we have a, y'all, bless them. They gave me great questions, but I just naturally get excited. And, and now like, we're going to get to the questions, but we might have some deviations along yeah. the way. But um, when you're serving this population, how has your practice changed? How has it evolved? Because I can speak English and bad English and apparently 20 English. And that's the limit of my, I can also say, where is the bathroom? Because when I was pregnant and then I was going to home health patients' houses, I can say that in Spanish because it's very, you know, difficult when you're, you know, when you have something playing hockey or soccer with your bladder. <laughs>
4: So, but yes, but how has practice evolved? Yeah, I mean, you working in a healthcare setting or really any setting as a speech pathologist, time is so valuable and there is, you know, productivity expectations and all of that, but it does take more time to provide service to these patients because of all of their other needs outside of just dysphagia. So, we all sat down together a few years ago and reflected on kind of what our experience had been and whether we felt like we were providing the care that our patients truly needed and i think that's what spurred us to really focus on you know increasing and improving access for these patients but you know we shared stories together of providing recommendations in radiology for thickening And we were giving them our, you know, recipes that we had developed and we're excited. We had food-based recipes and we're just handing these families English translations of like pudding, Mm -hmm. applesauce and watching the family's face go blank. And I think it was Juliet, your patient, you said you turned to the mom and said, do you know what pudding is? And the family actually had no idea what pudding was. So that's something so simple is just making sure you assume everybody knows what applesauce and pudding are, because we talk about that every day as speech pathologists, but truly something that simple, they really weren't taking and then trying to take that further to think, well, how do we make sure that they can access pudding and applesauce and yogurt and all of these foods? So- learning about different cultures and what are the foods that they're actually providing to their children in the home, who's preparing the foods, because a lot of our families have multi-generational homes with grandparents living in the homes, and they bring all of their cultural beliefs and practices to the table when they're feeding. So We've really made an effort to try to learn about different cultural foods for the populations that we service, like what are pupusas, and what is African fufu, and what are the textures that are in those foods, and how do you need to learn about your chewing development skills to make sure that they're able to provide those. You know, it's eye-opening with telehealth over the last few years to see inside a patient's home. It's such a privilege, but a lot of times you're seeing families that don't own a kitchen table and they're feeding their children on their beds or even Mm -hmm. all just sitting on the floors. And in some cultures, it is typical to feed on the floor. But for some of our patients, it's just that they don't have the resources to have what we think of as like a typical meal environment. So it's really been eye-opening and making sure that we're not just providing a list of recommendations that we have used all along, we need to really think through each recommendation thoughtfully to make sure that we're thinking ahead, like making sure we follow through to to ensure that they have the resources to then purchase what we are recommending or to obtain what they're recommending. There's,
0: so a couple of quick thoughts. I've had the pleasure of teaching the PFD class at University of South Carolina, and now that came out to me. And now I'm going to teach it at um, James Madison. But to be honest, they are both PWIs, predominantly white institutes. They are historically upper middle, upper to middle class individuals that are coming. And the question that I always start and I open my PFD classes: What is your favorite spice? What is the seasoning that you go to? But my favorite, I love oregano. So, like, I love umami. Makes my mouth So, <laughs> quick poll. Harry, what
4: is your favorite spice? Turmeric. Tu- Ooh, I don't cook with it. That's delightful. Jennifer? <laughs> well, my Italian mother won't be happy to hear this, but I've married a, uh, my husband's from El Salvador. So, I cook, I really enjoy cilantro. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a little controversial as a flavor
2: (laughs) or spice. Julia, what's your favorite, love? I'm of African descent. My favorite uh, is masala, which is African-Indian kind of mix. But, oh, if you've had masala tea, you probably have had a taste of it. But, like, the Mm -hmm. real masala really wakes up your mouth.
0: Yes. But that's. And so, folks, if you're making recommendations, and, and I say this because we develop our taste buds—sweet, salt, sour, bitter, umami—but that evolution in taste is actually an evolution in your brain's maturation. It's not so much your taste buds on your tongue, right? Which is very interesting. But so, if you have a patient that has a neurological infarct, they might have damage to the gustatory cortex portion of their brain, and. Be missing some of those taste buds. So we might, as upper middle class white families, give the perspective of French toast sticks, cinnamon rolls. Those are like average breakfasts, right? But we have to expand and take into account the culture that we're working with and seeking to understand those flavors. Because I will never forget, I had a little girl, she was Italian, spaghetti and meatballs. Favorite breakfast food,
4: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> whatever it was. I mean, spaghetti. You do you, honey. If it means you're putting the calories in safely, I'm game. But I, I say that so that if you're listening to this, we have those are part of our own implicit biases that we have to look at. Yes, just wanted to throw that in there.
4: But. Kind of a funny aside to that, Michelle. But a couple weeks ago, I had a patient who they were Af- of African descent, and the mom came to us because the child eats all of her cultural foods at home. Mm -hmm. And she explained all the vegetables and the flavors, and there's a little bit of spice. And it's like a soft kind of stew that she gives. And he eats everything she gives him at home, but she's concerned because he goes to daycare Mm -hmm. and won't eat chicken nuggets and mac and cheese and she really needs him to eat all of these american foods i think my mouth almost dropped when i said oh please don't lose what you've taught him and uh, you know it's it's necessary because she has to go to work and has to bring him to daycare but he really you know didn't have the chewing ability to eat the more complex or, you know, chewable textures, but he can eat these soft, really like stew or soup-like textures at home. So kind of, I thought that was so funny that we always think work towards the more complex. This mom was like, Oh, let's get him on the bland American diet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> also, I think I pick a stew over chicken nuggets any day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> <That's just me>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I, and I know I caught you mid thought process with that big but I just that was such a you connected so many neurons there. So mm-hmm. back to you, Miss Jennifer. What what else you wanna on your heart?
4: I don't know. Carrie, do you wanna talk about telehealth and
3: Yeah, I think so the one one thing that kind of came from the, the COVID pandemic was telehealth which was something that we have been able to use to kind of help us connect more with our families. We're able to kind of see them in their home. We can see what foods they have, what their seating and mealtime experience truly looks like. And I think it's helped us make our assessments and our recommendations more authentic. That's been huge for just like getting, there's nothing more intimate than being in someone's house. And, you know, they're welcoming us to their table, so to speak, or their mealtime. And we're just learning so much more about them. So I think that has really informed our practice. And it's helped with generalization too. You know, we're able to, it's one thing when a kid comes and does feeding therapy in the office and you can get them to eat a food, but then they go home. And that's always something that we hear, like, they'll do it with the therapist in the office, but we can't get them to do it at home. So I see that as kind of like the next step for generalization, you know, now you have us, but in your house. And so we've worked really hard to start collaborating with the community providers, early intervention or the ABA therapists, and we try to find a time when everybody can be at the family's mealtime together so we can try to promote generalization. So that's changed our practice and I think improved our practice.
4: We have documented to the change in show rate for our visits when you offer telehealth as an option. We used to have a lot of no-shows when parents had to bring their children into the hospital and ride buses with a stroller and once we started looking back and insurance start companies started decreasing the rate at which they'd reimburse for telehealth, we were able to prove that our access to care was so much better when we continue to offer telehealth as an option. So,
3: yeah. And that's, that's been really important too, that like, you know, telehealth to get to our hospital, you have to get your kid from, you have to leave work, get your kid from daycare, wait at the bus stop or wait for the train. And all of that is time. Right. And so now with telehealth, we can, the families meet us much more quickly, so to speak. Like they don't have to take the time, as much time off from work. They don't have to travel all in to the hospital. And then often when they get to the hospital, the poor kid is so dysregulated because they've been rushed onto the bus and off the bus. So it's, I just think it's really helped with accuracy and and Jen's right. Absolutely. With access to care, we're able, you know, if someone's just yesterday in clinic, we had, someone had a car issue. And so we just switched to telehealth and, you know, it's just so much easier for the families.
0: Yes. One of the big worries that I have fielded is especially in early intervention, the birth to three population, if the child falls asleep before the session, right? Which happens. And for me, the benefit of telehealth is when you're truly engaging in early intervention as laid out by, you know, the IDEA mandate, you're doing caregiver coaching. It's the If you're taking your skills, seeking to understand the caregiver's worries and empowering them, you're building them up in that time. And so for some of our most medically complex patients, if they're on multiple seizure medications, they might have windows during the day that they're awake. And I feel like somewhere along the line, Wearing faculty hat, we don't empower the students that it's okay if the tiny human is asleep when you're doing early intervention because you're there to coach the caregiver and empower them. And that's, you know, the natural question is, but I have to do something with the patient. I have to do something with the patient. I'm like, but you get one hour a week. It is what you are equipping the patient for the other 200 plus hours in the week or however many it is. I just forgot math, but it's that time that's important and let's be honest when you're doing caregiver coaching for PFD, you're in it for the long haul like these babies that we see they could be on your caseload for months or years and that's everybody wants the quick fix i
2: do y'all do that as well yeah i actually like that perspective because we've definitely encountered that especially with telehealth like all the babies asleep, we we were waiting, but they fell asleep. But then we're in the home. So we can be like, can we go to your pantry and like, take a look at what's in the pantry? And what, up, what can we come up with a plan or what foods to work on? Let me see yeah. what cups you have in the home. Let's look at the high chair or whatever you're doing for, for seeing for positioning, how can we work on this? So kind of not always focusing on the patient having to be actively involved in the visit, but what are other things we can do from like a parent training or coaching perspective yeah. uh, with the benefit of being in the home and being able to see these other foods, this is what's in my fridge, this is what's in my pantry, and, and sort of walking through that with a with parent, even if the kid's not able to participate.
0: Yes, yes. And that making of recipes, this is what we have in the pantry right now this week. What can I do with this? Or also I have seen some of the cleanest homes and some of the not the cleanest homes, home health life. It's not for the faint of heart. Let's be honest. Definitely had to pull cockroaches out of my bags. Like when I'm in doing my assessment and you're like, I'm gonna slide this right on out leave this here. But as I wiggle in my seat, but there were, those are real questions that then gets me back to access to care because it's through those moments when they're intimately showing me what's available that I can recognize and say, hey, it looks like you're running a little low this week. Did you know about this community resource or have you applied for this or has your case manager told you about this? And that's, this is part of equity is we're for lack of a better phrase, we're leveling the playing field, right? And that's what it should be. So how about with y'all, how is equity and access of care played in?
4: Mm. Yeah. And I think when we were in the past, if we had a family, for example, who needed a Dr. Brown preemie nipple, we would send them on their way with one or two nipples and assume that they would be able to take that recommendation, follow through. But we found at Boston Medical Center that despite our best intentions and giving them what we thought were the tools to succeed at home, we would see them back on telehealth a week later, two weeks later, or back in person. And they're not using the tools that we had already given them because somebody lost it, they left it at daycare. So you're know, you giving them these recommendations to try to have them be able to to succeed with feeding but it's really it was eye opening actually to see what they were coming back with and it's just setting their babies up to have safety issues with feeding so we ended up trying to learn about what the different bottles were that our patients had access to and mm-hmm. we actually I went to dollar tree I went to dollar general I went to family dollar walmart and bought all of the bottles because we know from Britt Pedos's testing of nipple flow rate, for example, what the best slow flow, medium flow, faster flow bottles are. And what we ended up doing was asking Britt uh, to help us with this initiative. And she tested these bottles for us, the, the nipples, and we were able to compare the information we learned from what the bottles are from these other more accessible stores to what we knew was the best practice in research. So I thought that was a really helpful thing that we've done to, or initiative that we've taken to be able to provide our families with recommendations that probably are more realistic for where they're going to purchase their bottles. So that's one thing that we've done. And Britt, I believe, is going to publish that information from those nipples on her website, infantfeedingcare.com. But Amazing. yeah, it's just Another initiative that we've taken is to all become certified lactation counselors. I think Carrie mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast. I think back in 2019, just learning about the Baby Friendly Initiative of Boston Medical Center, that really spurred us to want to be able to provide the best care for the patients who want to breastfeed in our hospital. We have a really high population of moms who... Are in recovery or uh, babies born with neonatal abstinence syndrome or mm-hmm. neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. So, we wanted to be able to support those babies as well and make sure that we're serving families that are now living in shelters and realizing that they don't have easy access to be able to obtain the thickeners that we want to suggest for aspiration. Or, you know, I actually had to. I called the WIC program in our state. I don't know if that's just a Massachusetts thing. Women, infants, and
2: mm-hmm. children. No, it's
4: And learn like what what is the process for recommending a patient to receive certain types of cereal, or what is actually available to our families who receive services through WIC. And that was really helpful to learn about that process as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Can I pop in real quick? Because WIC is a women, infants, children. It's a nationwide program. And what I was told in South Carolina is that if a patient needs thickener or if they need the cereal for like, you know, to slow the flow rate or whatever it may be, they, as long as they have a prescription from the physician in South Carolina, they would approve it and add it in earlier. And if they needed a specialty formula that might have been out of the price point. Like, say they need elementum, which smells friggin' awful. Like, I don't know about <laughs> you, but like, I get a lot of baby. Pickup, but when a baby pukes on me after that one, I'm always like, oof, that's right there, <laughs> poor baby.
3: <laughs>
0: but if they need that specialty formula, as long as they get the prescription from the physician, WIC normally covers it, unless there's like extenuating circumstances or clerical error because you know humans goof but that is at least what i have found i don't know if that holds true for y'all up there
2: yeah that's true for us too like if they need a specific like product for like the cereals or applesauce or whatever if they need more of it than what wick provides and the same for the specialty formulas so if they need more supply for thickening as long as they have that letter they can get more. But I, I think this is also kind of a nice segue into some of the things, the ways we've had to be creative in terms of, so our department and the hospital have done their best in terms of what they can provide for resources. But we had to sort of think outside the box, what more can we do? And so we thought about how about trying to apply for grants to see if we could get you know some funding to... Support some of our initiatives. So we applied for a health equity grant through BMC and patient safety grants, and uh, we were really lucky to get some substantial funding that that's been able to sort of help us kind of bridge those gaps. And one of the biggest gaps was just in like healthcare literacy or like info, like access to educational materials in their native languages. And through this process, we discovered how expensive it is to translate documents in several languages at a professional level. And so we kind of did a survey. We pulled data from EPIC on like what are the the five most common languages spoken by majority of our patients. And those were English, Spanish, Haitian, Creole, uh, Portuguese and Vietnamese, and so we were able to translate all of our thickening recipes for all the consistencies into all those languages. We were able to have professionally produced <laughs> videos on like how to thicken with gel mix, like step by step process video in five languages. How do you thicken with cereal? Videos done in all five. Have- Sorry. Is this on your website? Cause that's cool. So I'll get to that part <laughs> about, a- about accessing it. And then it's it testing, which we are all doing right now with because we know all the latest research about how the thickening recipe will be different based on are you on a fully elemental formula, or semi-elemental formula, or so we have a we created a video on how to do a testing and we were able to get that professionally done and translated into five you know acts you know accessible in five languages basic educational material on, like what's aspiration because a lot of families like they'll come for the swell study or the clinical feeding evaluation it's information overload and like what is happening what's going on so the feedback we received was. It would be helpful to have something with visuals of like the anatomy and like simple things of what symptoms would be concerning, what's actually aspiration and what can we do to address it. And we're able to have that done and like all the the five languages. And uh, we have an MBS social story because again, just understanding the process of where do I go to the hospital? What's a swallow study? What do I expect? What should I bring? And uh, so, so they're better able to, like, understand the process, but also to prep the the kids, especially for the older kids that might have some sort of behavioral, like, sensory-based uh, challenges. Yeah, and then we have all these kind of inbuilt into EPIC so that we can easily send it through the patient portal to, like, families to... Uh, to artists. and Carrie actually has a, a cool story about a, a Haitian Creole dad. Carrie, you want to tell your story about the translated materials?
3: Oh, he so we were part of Juliet's project, I don't know if you I don't think you mentioned this, Juliet, is that we have a, a graphic explaining aspiration, what it looks like in all the different languages. So I had shown them the graphic, which I had provided to them and the interpreter, it was in Haitian Creole, the interpreter took it and just started talking and explaining the aspiration. And so I started translating and he said, he was saying, I already said that. I said that because it's on the picture. I already, (laughs) I already said that. And so then I said, okay, well, I'm going to be right back. I just need to get some supplies. And we have these thickening kits that when we recommend thickening, we can give to the family. So I gave them all the nipples that they needed, the thickener, and I came back and the recipes were in Haitian Creole. And I handed it to the family and the dad started to cry and said, I We had recommended thickening before, prior to our intervention period, but we didn't have the recipes in Haitian Creole. And seeing them, he said, this is the first time that I've understood what you're telling me and that it's going into his lungs. And now I understand why you guys have been telling me I need to use this nipple. And then the interpreter was just in awe. He was like, I've never been able to explain this to a family like this. These graphics were so helpful. And he said, everything is written here in Haitian Creole. I can just explain it more naturally to the family. So, but I was, you know, I was struck by how impactful having the, materials in their native language was for the family and for the interpreter. Yes.
4: And having the images too, I think we take literacy for granted. And we realized when we reflected on our practice over the years that a lot of our population had low literacy levels. So we really wanted to commit to not just having everything written in these languages, but also visuals and images and videos that show step-by-step of how to work through the process for the interventions. That's right.
2: And, yeah. And we know like, and now we have like QR codes. So like you have a Portuguese speaking family that will come for the swallow study and the, the infant aspirating. They have the visual explaining everything. They have the recipes for thickening and their language. They have a QR code. They can go home, just scan it, and they can watch it hundred times if they need to on how to do the ITZ testing to make sure it's the correct consistency, how to thicken. And on top of that, we also sort of wanted to not just kind of assume what we felt like families needed, but also kind of directly hear from them. So from a qualitative research perspective, we had kind of baseline focus groups in English, Spanish, and Haitian Creole to kind of just talk to these families and find out what are the biggest barriers to access and care in terms of feeding and swallowing uh, interventions or just like speech and language interventions in general. What are the resources that are available to you? Like what stores do you go to, to buy things? What are some of the barriers to getting the things you need? What can we do to better like support you to make it easy to implement recommendations? And we sort of had to change some of our practice based on the feedback that we received And interestingly, one of the things that families really wanted was support groups. So the focus groups ended up almost starting to be support groups, even though that was not initially what that was intended for it to be. But the stress around feeding and feeding disorders is huge on families. And they were just like, we need to be able to talk to other parents about how they feel about this, how are they processing this, what are some things that are working for them. So in terms of next steps, that's one of the things we're thinking about. How can we do this to be able to provide that social support? Because we have the added challenge of, you know, transportation challenges, you know, childcare challenges, but also language differences. So thinking about, you know, going forward, how can we incorporate that? Because that was one of the like, really heavily requested kind of support that parents are looking for.
3: Yeah, that came up in clinic when a patient was telling us, I didn't realize that a patient, the patient has PFD. And the parent was saying, I've never met another family with a kid that has eating difficulty like this. And I went to this support group, they called the focus group, a support group. And to see other people in the room talking about the same thing. Was really impactful for me. And so I wanna know when you're gonna be doing that again. And I was thinking, she's talking about the focus group, where, you know, that wasn't really the impact, that wasn't really the point. But she said it was so important for me. And she said, now I talk to those people outside of the group. And yeah, it's just been a really big change for me to personally know someone that is, I don't feel as alone. Yes. So,
0: folks, if you're listening to this, And you're like, my family say the same thing. There's right out the gate, I got two thoughts. One, Feeding Matters has a program called The Power of Two. And for free, they will take one caregiver that they have gone through training with. It's a been there, done that auntie, mama, grandmama, whoever is the caregiver role that's walked this walk and they will train them to then mentor a new caregiver, somebody who's just starting this journey. Right. And that's all free. So that's a free resource that Feeding Matters does. Another one is the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD. One Thursday every month, they do And forgive me, I don't remember if it's the second or third Thursday that they do the pediatric support group, but they do they host a pediatric feeding disorder support group for caregivers and it's virtual. So anybody anywhere can log on. Normally, Donna Edwards, who um, is a ASHA fellow and a BCSS mentor, um, she was my mentor for the BCSS Mm -hmm. She normally is the one that hosts it and that's a free support group. So you can reach out. Also, NFOSD will provide you the tools to help set up a virtual support group for your facility, for your site, for your rehab company, for your early intervention outfit, whatever layer you're in. But there are tools out there if you hear this from your caregivers and they're free and amazing. Also, do you guys ever take advantage of the dysphagia outreach project to like help fund, right? DOP,
2: if you're listening, thank you for existing. (laughs) Yeah. Michelle, do you know if the NFOSD has any like non-English speaking groups?
0: That I don't know. But I do know that Inez Esperanza, who just got her C's, she was volunteering her time with Feeding Matters and translating the documents into Spanish. And Inez is presenting at ASHA on uh, DEIA barriers for clinicians into the field with PFD. And she's presenting with... Oh my God, don't kill me. I just (laughs) forgot her name and I can see her face. Dr. Lindsay from Georgia. I just can't remember Lindsay's last name, but she's, she's brilliant. Oh, I will research this because now I'm embarrassed, but it's one of our invited talks for PFD this year. Um, so um, also, I was just thinking as you were talking, we need to talk about interpreters and see if we can get Feeding Matters, some of their additional tools into the hands of other interpreters. But yes, oh, you guys are doing phenomenal
3: work. <laughs> this, yeah, are you at, exhausted? Because yeah. I'm exhausted for you all. <laughs> It certainly takes a team, that's for sure.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it's definitely very meaningful and rewarding work. And even though, and I know you had asked about kind of our, that stuff being on our website. So we just started rolling that out through, because we're doing pre and post sort of intervention research to see if this actually makes meaningful you know, this measurable kind of change from this. So I I think once we're done with that process and then kind of getting clearance through BMC marketing about making this accessible, I think it's going to be great because there's all over the country, a lot of urban populations, a lot of non-English speak. We also have these things in English. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you could just... Whenever that becomes accessible, can just like watch how to do it's a testing, what how to make cereal, whatever. But the to make this available in you know all these languages and have the visuals and all that, even just like seeing the faces of the families when you're like, okay, here's the handout, and they're like, oh, it's in Portuguese. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, that's awesome. You know, even to just have that option for the bilingual ones to like would you like this in English or Spanish? And they're like, you know, I speak English, but I read better in Spanish. Can I have the written ones in Spanish? You know? Yeah. It's just, I think been really life changing for a lot of our patients to, to just improve that access, but also what we're able to do with supplies, because we're no longer just giving like one to two nipples for, okay, we need to change the feeding plan because they're aspirating grossly, but He has four bottles and he has like five nipples and he has like five boxes of cereal to get you started. And if you need more colors or like come to the front desk and you can have more and they're like, oh, so I don't have to run to the store and try to scramble at the end of the day to try and get this started on the other options, just going home and feeding him the same thing, knowing his aspirating. So just have that peace of mind to have like a good chunk of supplies to get started it has been really helpful. So, you know, I, I would encourage other people to just be creative, think outside the box. There are grants out there, you know. You don't be afraid to ask or, like, you know, see if there's other ways that you can be creative about improving access for some of this more diverse and, like, lower SES, you know, families that we work
4: Even before we started this research project, being able to provide all these dysphagia. Items to the families. Carrie, you had a taste of this during the pandemic when you were still running the sensory feeding groups and you had the caregiver, you had the, was it the social workers actually delivering food boxes to the families? Physicians, all of us. Yeah. So we had a, we have a
3: virtual group feeding therapy program that we do every, twice a month for our patients with PFD. And one of the challenges is that families that are food insecure don't really feel comfortable playing with food, right? Because they need to eat the food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our what we've done is paired with the Boston Medical Center has the, had the first hospital-based food pantry in the U.S., the preventative food pantry, And so we would take bags of food from the food pantry, which gives each family enough food for two weeks for their household. And we would drop it off at their house with a note on how to log into our feeding therapy program. And so the families would all have the same food and they could all participate together. And yeah, during the pandemic, we dropped off a lot of food to a lot of different families in the Boston area. And the food pantry is still around. Patients can go after their visits. They, They get kind of "Quote unquote" prescriptions for foods that are medically necessary for them. So it can be; it's totally customized to what their dietary needs are.
2: And we oh, can write yeah, those I prescriptions understand. as SLPs. So if they come for feeding therapy or a, a visit, and they screen for like needing that, the SLP can just write the. They call it a prescription, but it's just literally just saying they need to go to the food pantry to get some supplies, and then they can just go and get it.
3: Mm-hmm. And I we actually or work very closely with the food pantry manager. So we can say, hey, we have a family. We'll call him. He has food bags ready to go. We have a feeding therapy family coming. Can you make sure it's ready for them? And he's happy to do that. And then he, it's conveniently located next to the WIC office. So a lot of families, if they're going down to get their WIC supplies anyway, they just go over to the food pantry, get their groceries, and then they're all set. So the funding, because my next thought is how is that
0: funded? Is that a grant? Is that insurance? Is that... Just magical monies the hospital allocates out of the goodwill.
3: Well, a lot of the food pantry at BMC is funded by a lot of donations. But the hospital also does fund it. They they gave away, I, the most recent number we have is in 2021, they gave away 50,000 pounds of food to 83,000 patients and their families. So it's a lot, it's a big production. The other thing that BMC has that we also have taken advantage of is a rooftop garden, a rooftop farm. And so we do a feeding therapy class every month in the summer on the rooftop farm with the farmer. And it's just amazing. And then the farmers harvest the fruits and vegetables and herbs and what's there. And then the food is available every Tuesday for patients, families, and employees in a BMC farmer's market, which is amazing. So there's pretty big bags of food that they, you wouldn't believe the produce that they get from this rooftop garden. It's amazing the volume and the quality. They're just beautiful. And for a dollar, you can get these huge bags of produce. That's an
0: answer to prayers for so many, I'm sure. And just to be able to pay it forward like that. Also, Okay. I get to thinking about this, the green space on the roof. I mean, you're feeding their bodies, you're nourishing them that way, but also the amount of good that that green space on a roof does for city, for overall temperature, for um, they were trying to make a pitch in Columbia before we left because the downtown Columbia, South Carolina, when um, they had I don't remember which organization came in. It's three degrees higher temperature in downtown Columbia than it is just a half a mile out because of all of the um, asphalt surfaces and the roof lines. And they were talking about putting green spaces on some of the roofs. But all I can think of is, but what can we do that's good? I mean, yes, putting green space on roof is good, but this is a prime example of paying it forward on a whole nother level. I hope somebody somewhere is listening and can make a connection. <laughs> okay. So to be respectful of everybody's time, because I know I'm gonna have a meeting in like 20 minutes. And I can only assume how many patients y'all have to go see today. But can you give me your parting thoughts? And as you're giving me your parting thoughts, can you tell us if anybody has any love money lying around, or as grandma would say, a little bit of mad money, where could they donate it to? So, well, I'll start Juliet. I'll go backwards. I'll, I'm on my screen, y'all are this way. So I'll start with Juliet, <laughs> then go to Jennifer, then go to Carrie. How about that?
2: Well, first, I want to just say thank you for having us today and, you know, giving us the opportunity to share some of this really work that's so dear to our hearts. And I hope that, you know, even if it's one thing you take from today that inspires you to be, you know, that person that, you know, takes that step to inspire change, like, don't wait for somebody to do it. You can do it, mm-hmm. you know, and you can start from the smallest steps. What the work we do is so meaningful. Feeding is such a, it's the heart of like every family, every occasion, every day. Like, we eat every day. And so, uh, it's a privilege to support these families and this journey and whatever we can do to help, you know, make things better mm-hmm. in terms of where to donate. I think we have the grow clinic at Boston medical center it sees a lot of immigrant population, low, you know, socioeconomic status, but it's a, a clinic for kids that are have failure to, to thrive or growth, faltering, feeding difficulties there's a lot of food insecurity. So if you just go to Boston, the Boston Medical Center website and look for the Grow Clinic, there's a button there to donate, and I'm sure they would appreciate it. And that goes directly to the families and the the children that are seen through that clinic and supports everything from food to formula to diapers, wipes, and other supplies. That, that's helpful. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. And and Jennifer, final Pearls of wisdom for, um, I should have saved the pearls of wisdom joke for Carrie, just kidding, uh, but um, pearls of wisdom for the the topic and then
4: donate to Yeah, us. I think, you know, I just, I'm so grateful to you for giving us this opportunity to bring what we've done at Boston Medical Center to a wider audience, because I don't think I've ever felt so rewarded by my work just in terms of providing care and actually getting the Items that families need into their hands, and you know, you asked a few minutes ago if we're tired, but no, I I don't think I've ever felt more energized actually, because it's so rewarding, and I think you know it, it's so nice to be part of a, a team that everybody shares the same mission, and so yes, I just wanted to say thank you, and hopefully people can take even one small thing from this and start to think about. How, how you can change what you're doing now to make it more meaningful and accessible to their patients.
0: Yes, and and I'm assuming you would also like to support the Grow program as well.
4: <laughs> oh yes, be- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think all three of us are. We've all had patients that benefit from this Grow program. I mean, their nutritionists are going to the grocery store with the families and selecting what? the items that we recommend. It is. You know, it is so supportive, but this is really what these families need. And this clinic goes above and beyond. If you say they need oatmeal cereal, but they don't know how to get to the grocery store to buy Earth's best oatmeal cereal, they will take the family to the grocery store, walk them through it, go through the whole process. It's such a supportive clinic that I think I don't want to speak for you too, Carrie, but I would also say that that, that's really where our heart and, and funding would go towards. Yeah. It's such a wonderful program.
3: And not only do they help with concrete resources, but they have a lot of mental health resources. They just anything a family needs, it's truly a wraparound program. I, you know, their community outreach workers have helped families navigate the public transit system in Boston. It's just anything you could need. So they're an amazing program. We're lucky to be able to partner with them.
0: That's amazing. Thank you. Well, y'all, I'm going to pitch Feeding Matters as my um, donation spot of choice because um, I have had families be recipients of the Feeding Matters Scholarship, and that's how they got to Boston um, for second opinions. And, you know, it helps if you know your little one has EOE, or it helps if you know that your little one has a laryngeal cleft, because that's going to change treatment methodologies and, you know, surgery can help. I'm being facetious, but like, I appreciate what y'all do very much. (laughs) So now if folks want to, I just dropped my back pillow. If folks want to learn more from y'all or from your colleagues, could you maybe drop the name of a lecture or
3: two that are being presented at ASHA? Do y'all have those handy? Um, Our our BMC team is presenting Food Explorers, our feeding therapy program, and all the different iterations that we do of feeding therapy at BMC. I'd like to call it our feeding therapy menu. So we will be presenting on Saturday afternoon. And I want to just say from our presentation last year, we learned so much from the people that attended our talks that came up and talked to us after and in particular the team at leboner children's hospital shared so much information and they were like you know we learned so much from the other people that came to talk to us so i would say if you're at asha we would love to connect with with everyone
2: yes yeah i think i have a talk on preterm feeding it's like a three part series following cases all the way from the NICU to outpatient and that progression. So, yeah, come over and learn with us if you can. <laughs>
0: yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you all so very much for sharing your time and your wisdom. Folks, check us out on First Bite on Instagram as well as on the land of the faces. And, you know, we appreciate it when you give us gentle, kind words of love on The Apple podcast is a purple one. I have to remember which one is the purple one. But uh, if you need us, just message us right through there. And ladies, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
3: Thank you for joining us for today's course. To complete the course, you must log into your account and complete the quiz and the survey. If you have indicated
1: that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a
3: complete mailing address in your account profile, prior to course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to reflect on your ASHA transcript. Please note that if this information is missing, we cannot submit to ASHA on your behalf. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you next time.
0: Feeding Matters Be kind and
4: feed those babies.